You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi everyone, Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Instagram can be so much fun, especially for me because that's how I get to connect with all of you. But part of the reason it's so great is because of Eva Chen, who is director of fashion partnerships. I just love Eva since way back in the day at Lucky Magazine, and I was so happy to have her on the pod to discuss her incredible career path. Do you know that she started off as pre-med? She talks about the importance of mentors, loving what you do, why her 30s are way better than her 20s, what she's learned as a parent, and most importantly, her children's book series. Yes, she also happens to write children's books. The latest, Juno Valentine and the Fantastic Fashion Adventure, is now out, and it's great. Enjoy. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I was actually trying when I was going through and doing my prep document. I was like, when did we meet? When did we meet? We met. Do you remember? Because I, I feel like you've always been here, which I think is such a I'm good just, sign I'm of ubiquitous. adoring people. <laughs> I'm like that one thing in your closet where you're like, how did I get this? How long have I had no, this? No, I is disagree. That- it's like I, I, it's like I'm so happy that you showed up that I feel like you've always been a presence. We met probably over a decade. Maybe a decade ago. I mean, yes. A full decade. For sure a decade. We should be like, I don't know, is this a diamond celebration? We should be giving each other diamonds. Are we going to buy jewelry after? I think. I think okay, we should great. do that. And we met through Era Cats at Summit, which is like a tech kind of like retreat. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how we met. Yeah. And like Erica from PSI Made This, yes. MT Carney, all these like great, awesome women doing great, awesome things. And I feel like we always just kept in touch through all the different iterations of like jobs, life, career, yeah. everything going on. And yeah, we've just known each other. And 
I have so much respect for what you're doing and everything you do. So yay. Oh my gosh, thank you. And same. And and when you think about tech and iterations, jobs, you, you know, being this powerhouse in the fashion industry and now running all of these big partnerships at Instagram. Mm. It's such an interesting kind of pivot as the world is modernizing to go from being an editor-in-chief to doing tech work. Mm-hmm. What is life like for you right now? What What is being at Instagram like? Being at Instagram is great. It's so much fun. I'm coming up on my four-year anniversary there. And, you know, I feel like I look at my career from a bird's eye perspective. And a lot of the time people were, are like, how did you know to make the jump from, I was pre-med many moons ago. And then I, I was pre, and then I was like pre-law. And then I was like pre-existential crisis. <laughs> and then I worked in magazines for a decade. And then I uh, have been at Instagram for a while. And now I'm writing children's books. Like, you know, I, I think in general, I've always approached my career just from like a point of passion where it's like, am I interested in what I'm doing? Do I love it? Do I feel excited by it? So being at Instagram is great because I feel like I'm surrounded by really smart people. It's really satisfying to go out there and see people using the like Instagram, uh, using the product and using Instagram and doing cool things on it, whether mm-hmm. it's advocacy for, you know, gender equality or, um, you know, talking about, something that's important to them or sharing like important family moments. And so it's been fantastic. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's been crazy to see how it's grown though, you know, from when I started to now it's, there are like a billion people on the platform. But for me, like when I think about it on a personal level, like my book came about because of Instagram. Like I met my illustrator on Instagram. Like we Mm -hmm. did the whole half of the book over like DM and Mm -hmm. text message and WhatsApp. And so it's been really great to see how it it can be a tool that connects people as well. Because I'm sure you feel that way where there are people who are like, like, like you and I, like we don't like, text each other every day but I feel like I know what you're up to and then like we DM so we find kind of feel like we're in tune with each other's lives and I think that's it's great when it can connect people in that way and I do think that in an especially busy world and for women like us who have such busy careers it does help us stay connected to each Mm -hmm. other when 10 years ago we probably just wouldn't really get to talk all that often totally and that's a really interesting gift of that kind of social connection. Totally. And I'm sure you hear that where someone comes up to you and they're like, oh, how was your, you haven't seen them in a while, but they'll mm-hmm. be like, how was your vacation? How was Greece, et cetera. Yeah. Like they know what you've been Everyone up to. Everyone is in Greece. What Greece is going on with Greece? Like, I don't know. I have been wanting to go to Greece forever, literally forever. Me too. And now everybody's there. And I'm like, I, this feels like a sign I have to go. I need, we have I need like to get to Greece, Greece FOMO. Yeah, I, I mostly just want like tzatziki sauce and pita and like baba ganoush. I want the food and I want the water and I want a nap. I want to take all the naps. Yeah. You want a nap, but you want a nap in one of those like beautiful white villas yeah. with like that really blue water. Yeah. Maybe with like a glass of like white wine next to you. Right when I wake up, just roll yeah. over. The- I feel like I would have the best nap of my life in Greece. <sighs> I feel like we should go. Okay. Should we do a retreat yeah. in Greece? Great. Okay. Adding that to my to-do list. You're the director list. of fashion partnerships for yeah. a billion people. I feel like you, I don't know how to do that, but I know that you know how to do that. And like, anytime you plan something, I will sign up. Yeah. To maybe we can work on that. Maybe we can rope in like era, the OG, yeah. the OG crew of ladies. Yeah. How about that? Okay. Let's do that. I like that. Because I also feel like when we met, like th- there might've been bunk beds involved and like we were all oh, sharing sure. a room or something mm-hmm. and we were all crashing and it was like You're tiny right. and cramped and like... But I'm into it. 
Yeah, you I'm were so into it. that. It was fun. It's like my parents think it's weird that I still have friends who live with me. And I'm like, you don't understand. This is my choice. It's good. I clearly don't need to have a roommate, but yeah. I like I, I like that. I'm, I'm all about the bunk up. I think it's good to have like a support system mm-hmm. and a group. I don't know that I personally want to live with like anyone. But you have roommates <laughs> because you have a husband and babies. Yeah, but even like <laughs> including that company... <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, when people talk about, you know, oh, like solitary confinement, like imagine how like isolating that would be. I just like, it's hard when you have young kids mm. at the age my kids are at now. It's like all the cliches are true where you, you, you'll hear moms complaining like, oh, I can't even go to the bathroom by myself. Like this is very true. Like mm. I have an audience for everything. Right. For, no performance anxiety if I have to go pee. Like, it's, cause it's like, I'm used to my kids like standing there, like waiting for me to finish. Yeah. I kind of got to that point, which you know all about from working in fashion. I will change my clothes in front of any girl. Yeah. I literally, I mean, I like don't want to change my clothes in front of guys cause hello, that yeah. can be weird, but, yeah. uh, unless they don't play for my team. And then yeah. I'm like, then do you like, like this outfit? You yeah. know, stay, tell me everything. But yeah, like photo shoots and working on sets and having to like change in the back mm-hmm. of transpo vans, like mm-hmm. in between scenes for show. I just am like. It went away. Yeah. That that thing is just gone for me. Totally. And then I think for me, what really – I used to be that person in like the dressing room of the gym. Not, now I don't go to the gym anymore. <laughs> don't have time. But I used to be that person who would like change behind a towel or go mm. into a changing room. And now I'm literally like, whoop, everything's off. Like no problem. Yeah. And I think that when I – was pregnant, you literally get like your blood taken once a week. You get like things checked that mm-hmm. involve like rubber gloves and stuff like once a week. And your bo- you start feeling like just like a slab of like, I don't eat bacon, but I'm bacon. You I don't know. Bacon, bacon yeah. some sort of like delicious cured meat. And so basically I don't have a lot of like kind of weird feelings about that anymore. And also I feel the same way about other women's bodies where it's like one of my coworkers is like, oh, you know, she's going through a medical procedure where she might have to give herself injections. And I was like, I'll do that for you. And she's like, are you qualified? I was, And I'm like, I was pre-med actually 20 years ago. So yes, I could I totally, and I watched, <laughs> I watched a lot of episodes of ER and Grey's Anatomy. So <laughs> I am qualified. That's sort of how I feel about jury duty is I'm like, I worked on a cop show. I literally worked yeah. for Dick Wolf, who is essentially, he should run the Supreme Court. Yes. And like, hello, I would be a great juror. I will know who did it. I will, I, I'm in. But they won't let you do it because no, that's that's too much they, information. they think it's prejudicial information on there my There we part. go. Look at you. But I still get summoned for jury duty, which yeah. is super annoying because I'm like, you make me come in and yes. wait all day. And then you find out what I do for a living and you kick me out. Like, isn't there some sort of form I could send in to be like, you made the decision that I'm not allowed to do this, even though I think I would be excellent at it. So stop calling. But you say this now and then you will eventually get called and it's going to be like grand jury for like where you're going to have to be have to be sequestered I would in a motel. It. And you would lose it. I would have a real hard time. I check the news obsessively all day, every day, as you know. I mean, yeah. you follow my Instagram. Yeah. If I could not look at the news for imagine? six months like an OJ trial, I would die. Think about all the pop culture you would miss too. I don't even – I mean, that would make me sad. I would care about that. But like – no, it would make me sad. I yeah. like to know things. Yeah. But I – if I could not read the news, I would – I feel it. like I would spontaneously combust. I just – I don't know how people would deal with that. I don't either. Mm. Are We're you too connected. News? Oh my God. Yeah. I do feel like for me, 
there's just a lot of like heavy, stressful stuff in the news. Mm -hmm. And it fills me simultaneously with like rage. And then the the best byproduct of rage is action, I think. But then also sometimes, especially when I'm with like my daughter, it fills me like I'm kind of like, this is why we have to be vocal. We have to be loud. We have to gather like all the women and men and Mm -hmm. allies around us. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is kind of like, there's a lot of heavy stuff happening. Yeah. But I think for me, understanding how the system is working and Mm -hmm. what we can do to advocate to change it is what makes me feel hopeful about the heaviness Mm -hmm. rather than crushed by it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm just in it all the time. Mm. I sort of use, I use my Instagram almost as a news channel. Definitely. And oh, then yeah. I also am like, I need to give people some joy. And like, here's a, here's a puppy. Yeah. And occasionally I'm like, look, I found flowers. Like I know that I need to give people joy also. And yeah. I, and I want to have joy. I think you have to post like what you want to post. And that's like when people ask me like, what's the secret? I'm like, post what you want to post, like post what brings you happiness. Yeah, Be who you are. Or kind of that you find important. And that's the best use case for sure. So pre-social media mm-hmm. and, you know, UVs and all these things, I want to go way back because you are so savvy. You have worked in so many spaces and studied so many things. And I'm just curious about the beginning for you. I wonder what Eva was like when she was like this tall. You know, okay, you grew I, up in New York City. Yeah, when I was like three feet tall, let me think. So, so like where did yeah. you live? What was yeah, growing yeah. up in the city like? Totally. So I grew up right now where what? On like 15th Street or something in the city-ish. So. I grew up on 10th Street. So I grew up okay. like a few blocks away in Greenwich Village in the 80s. So it was not like as like fancy pants as it is now. And I was, I'm a first generation American. So my parents came here from Taiwan um, via China in the 70s. Mm. And so when I, my parents moved here to like pursue the quote unquote American dream Mm. as it was then and still should be, which it isn't, but that's a whole different sidebar segue conversation. But basically they moved here, you know, to give me and my brother, you know, opportunities. Mm -hmm. I didn't really speak English until I think it was about six years old. Your parents moved here and then you and your brother were born here. Born here. Yes. But my parents were not born here. Got it. And and have they talked to you about what immigrating was like? They, they have on and off. I know it was incredibly hard. My dad Mm -hmm. came first. My my mom and dad got married. My dad came first and basically like he did the classic kind of Chinese immigrant story. He worked at a Chinese restaurant delivering food. The restaurant's, I think, still open on the Upper East Side. And then he kind of got into the import-export business where he, I I have to get the exact story because I am like, he's told it to me, but you know, when you're a teenager and you t- yeah. tune your parents out, and but you're now like, when you were a kid, I get yeah. it. Yeah. But now as an adult, you're like, tell me everything. Yeah, you I want to know everything. How Every did it make single- you feel? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so he was like, you know, selling umbrellas on Broadway that he got from China mm-hmm. to other businesses. And so it was tough because I do feel like I lived in this kind of like bifurcated world where mm-hmm. half of me was growing up in an American society, American system, this was the 80s where like Cindy Crawford and Claudia Schiffer and all those mm-hmm. like 80s and 90s supermodels were the archetypes of beauty. 
And I was going to schools where, of course, everyone spoke English. And I was going to public and private schools where oftentimes I was the only Chinese or Asian, kind of East Asian person there. Mm. And so by day, I would be surrounded by people who didn't look like me, who valued different things from me and thought different things were like, cool than what I was used to. And then when I went home at night, it was like I only spoke Chinese at home. And with my parents who were like incredibly hardworking and gave um, you know, their, their family so many opportunities. But so yeah, it was tricky because I always kind of felt like I kind of jumped between multiple worlds. Mm-hmm. And so when I was growing up, I feel like I didn't belong to like one set crowd at school. I def I mean, I can say unequivocally, I was not part of the cool kids club, Mm. but I was able to kind of hop between groups. I think because like in my own life, I was, I always kind of hop between a lot of different kind of groups as well. Like, you know, am I Chinese? Am I, I was never like quite Chinese enough to hang, especially in college to hang out with like the Asian kids. Mm -hmm. But then like, I often was the only Asian in like a different group, you know? So, um, kind of growing up aware of like being the only one in the room, but I wasn't when, when I was like, quote unquote, like this big, like, you know, about three feet tall or like this size of my, my daughter, like definitely was not confident, wasn't unconfident, but just kind of was like, not like self-aware. And I think kids these days and teenagers these days, especially and young women are so much more self-aware. Like the average 20 something I talk to like is more self-aware as like a 21 year old than like, I don't know, someone double or triple there. There's a lot of self-examination that happens. And I think that's great. And I really used books as a solace and as Mm. kind of like my world where I didn't quite fit in into any of these worlds, but books, like I could plug into the world of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and feel like I was one of those siblings. Mm. Or I could read like Roald Dahl's books and feel like, you know, just lost in that world. And these were worlds in the world of books that I didn't have to worry about fitting in Mm -hmm. and I could just kind of go with the flow. So yeah, that's, that's how I was as a kid. And I feel like I didn't really come into my own People always talk about the teens being tough, which they definitely are. And I really feel for the teens today where, you know, everything is, um, I think I worked at Teen Vogue for many years and I feel like there's just a pressure to be perfect at a, mm-hmm. at a young age these days. And also there's a pressure to have your shit together at the age of like 17. And I look back to myself at 17. And when I think about myself at 17, I think I was closer to like a 14 year old when I was 17. I feel that way too. Such a late bloomer. I was a super late bloomer. And then I talked to my friends who were in their 20s and coworkers in their 20s and, you know, college students who I just happened to meet their early 20s or people who've just recently graduated. And gosh, like the 20s are so tough. Like I would almost rather go back to teens than 20s. I think the 20s are really hard. Because Why do you think that is? I think because when you're in your 20s, you're expected to have a career or some semblance of a career. You're expected to be some like on the road to financial independence, which we all know nowadays is harder than ever. And um, I think you're expected to present yourself as an adult, but it's it's hard because like these are things that for everyone they mature at a different rate and also like you need people to teach you these things and to mm-hmm. talk about these things and so for me i'm in my 30s i'm well into my 30s like late 30s we'll put it that way and it's like I think it's great. The thirties are great. Like mm-hmm. one of my um, coworkers just turned 30 and I was like, it's like the best, like you're yeah. going to love it. Yeah. I remember when I turned 30, I literally was like, take the book of my twenties and burn it. Yeah. Like set it on fire, throw it in the, throw it in the bin. Let's mm-hmm. go. 
Yeah. Your 30s create such freedom. And that's when I finally started to feel like an adult. Yeah. I kind of felt like a teenager and then a college kid until I turned 30. Totally. Totally. And it's like the analogy I always give when people are like, what is it like? when people ask like, well, what's the difference? I'm like, well, you know, like in your twenties, someone will invite you to a party and you'll like spend all week dreading this party. You'll be like, God, I don't want to go to this party. Like so-and-so invited me, but I feel like I have to go because she came to like this thing I did. And I feel like she'll be mad if I don't go. And then she'll text me and it'll be passive aggressive and it'll be weird. Right. When you're in your thirties, especially your late thirties, someone will text you and be like, Hey, I'm doing this. And you'll be like, sorry, can't make it. Bye. Like, I just feel pretty unapologetic Mm -hmm. and I feel sometimes bad about it, but I don't because I'm also like, I know like what I need to do to like, for me and to take care of myself. And I, and I feel like so much of my life is like taking care of other people, whether it's my Mm -hmm. kids or work or like I'm on deadline for the books and this and that. And I feel like now in my thirties, I'm like, girl, I got to sleep tonight. I'm really sorry. Like I feel like I've been behind on sleep and Mm -hmm. if I don't sleep, I will have a nervous breakdown. So I'm really sorry. I can't go to your birthday, but here, like I'm sending you a bottle of champagne and let's do a one-on-one dinner in a few weeks when I'm out of this hole. And it's so lovely to have that kind of open communication with people. I feel like I'm much more transparent about like everything. Mm Um, and I just feel like I, I just feel like it's okay to kind of like say like I need to take care of myself because mm-hmm. um, I don't want to burn out and I want to like – and now especially with these two young – like God, like having two kids under the age of five, it's just like I'm really tired. And so like I, I feel like I need to restore myself mm-hmm. somehow. So I am curious because I spent a lot of time here as a kid with my family, but um, – because, you know, my mom's whole family's from the East Coast and mm-hmm. from Jersey and New mm-hmm. York and – I remember coming into the city and just loving it and being so amazed. And I wonder about kids who grow up here. Like they talk about how growing up in New York, you have so much freedom so early. Were you one of those 12 year old kids riding the subway? Oh my God. No, I feel like I was super sheltered as a kid, like super, super sheltered. I remember I was like 16 years old and I wanted to go to Barnes and Noble to like read magazines because there were all these like international magazines that, you know, international magazines at the time and still are like so expensive. It's like mm-hmm. $12 for an international edition. Yes. And so like my friends and I would be like, can we go to Barnes and Noble? And I would ask my mom and she'd be like, no, this is like Barnes and Noble. And you were 16. It wasn't even like a front for going to a party. It was literally like I wanted to go read magazines. So I was like really, really sheltered. And mm-hmm. I think my I definitely had very, very protective parents. I don't think I was allowed to ride the subway by myself until I was like 16 either. Mm-hmm. So, but, but I think that's an anomaly. I don't think it was a bad thing though. In retrospect, I don't think it was a bad thing. Yeah. And then in practice now as a mom myself, I'm like, dude, I am so going to do that with my kids. My daughter is going to be like, hey, can I have this? And I'll be like, no. Absolutely not. I will be there with you. And when she's like, I'm going to college at, I'm just saying Stanford. I don't want to like put that expectation on her. I'll be like, great. I'm moving down the street. So fun. Let's live together. So fun. Can't wait to go to a party with you. Let's go. You know, like uh-huh. I'll be like that Melissa McCarthy movie or whatever party, Amy Schumer, Melissa McCarthy, Life of the Party, whatever it was, where it's like she goes with her kid. I won't really do that because I will be at home like drinking my chamomile tea. But no, I was really sheltered. And I remember working at Teen Vogue. Like this is right around when Gossip Girl came out and being like, people were like, oh, you went to a private 
like all girls school on the Upper East Side. Was that what it's like? Was it like, I don't remember what they called the school in Gossip Girl. I think it was called like the Constance School or something like that. And I remember being like, no. no. <laughs> like literally I went to like the nerdiest, most academic all girls school. We were like social pariahs. But then when I was at Teen Vogue, we did a lot of like, I did a lot of reporting because I worked on features and I did a lot of features about mental health and drinking and blah, 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 and all that stuff. And I remember doing a story that was like called like, remember it was like the real life gossip girls. And it, and I remember going to a teen party at the Waldorf Astoria where they had rented out like half a floor no. suite. And I remember being like, these kids were like 15 years old. And I remember being like, oh my God, this is like, this is real. And so we did it on two coasts. I did that story on the west, uh, on the East Coast. And it was like the Waldorf Astoria. And it was like, it was very gossip girly. Like, and they all had like Chanel bags. And I remember one of the girls, I was like kind of a reportage, like kind of following along. And one of the girls like lost her Chanel bag in the back of a cab. And then her, her friend had to like literally like carry her into her like, you know, penthouse apartment. And it was like a whole thing. And I, I remember my mind was blown. It was like, it felt like a TV show. I literally was like, oh my God, this is like a real thing. And then on the West coast, there was a similar, it was like, it, they all went out to sushi and they were doing sake bombs and teenagers, teenagers. But I was like, I don't know. I, I, I just, it was so different from my upbringing because I look back at pictures of myself sometimes as a teen. And I was like, man, like if you definition of awkward is like me, I had this like huge perm that was like, my head looked like kind of like a fuzzy mushroom. My eyebrows were like Frida Kahlo had like nothing on my eyebrows. I had braces for six years. I'm getting Invisalign on Friday. I'm so excited. Oh. And it's weird because when I was a teen, I hated braces, but now I'm so excited to have like nice straight teeth. They're pretty straight, but it's like, I was just so awkward. I don't know. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of amazing. Yeah, I I was a late bloomer, but like by my senior year, there was a whole culture of house parties. Mm. And I remember what a big deal it was, but my mom demystified that whole thing for me because mm. my mom was like, listen, you're a teenager. You're 17 years old. You think you're super smart. You think you're going to pull one over on me. And she was like, I know you're a good kid. You've never broken your curfew. You've never snuck out. She's mm. like, my mom was in an is, but was really when I was in high school, a total insomniac. So like, there's no getting anything past her. And she just said like, honey, I partied at studio 54. Like I have seen shit you will never see. Part of me feels sorry for you. Part of me is relieved. So if you think you're going to like go to a party and drink some beer and come home and I'm not going to know you're an idiot. And it was in that moment where I was like, okay. And then she said, but if you do go to a party and you do decide to drink beer and you are going to risk like being the person everyone's talking about on Monday, if you can't remember what mm. you did, at least don't get in the car with your friends. Mm. If you call me and you don't get in the car with your friends, you won't be in trouble. I'll come pick you up. Mm -hmm. So in a way she told, she told me it was like a one, two punch of you will never sneak anything past me. And also as long as you're responsible, you won't be in trouble for being a teenager. Mm -hmm. So I like, I don't know, eight to nine, eight to nine out of 10 parties I ever went to, I was the designated driver. I was like, you guys, my mom is not to be messed yeah. around with. Like that was me in college. I was always the designated driver and mm -hmm. I would like make sure everyone was buckled in. And then yeah. I would drive with like white <laughs> knuckles because I would be like, oh my God, oh, like, my brother take my care God. of all my friends. Yeah.
So you mentioned that you were pre-med. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious because, you know, my dad is an immigrant and my mom mm-hmm. is the first generation American in my family. My mom's whole family came, you know, through Ellis Island via mm-hmm. Italy, the whole mm-hmm. classic American yeah, dream yeah. story. And I'm curious about if pre-med was sort of the like classic immigrant family oh, thing. Like totally. you can be a doctor, a lawyer, a doctor, a lawyer, or a lawyer. It's like doctor, <laughs> lawyer, banker, engineer. Oh. So that was always kind of like those were the four careers okay. that were preferred for sure. Okay. For me, it wasn't one of those things where my parents like were forcing me, forcing me, because I did always have an aptitude for science and did pretty well in like biology and chemistry and all of that. So I was kind of on autopilot, I would Mm -hmm. say, where I just like never questioned it. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like in life, there are like clues in your life. like And it's whether or not, not to sound super new age, you kind of like tune in to the Mm -hmm. clues that are coming at you from the universe. And so for me, I was always like, decent at science, but like I loved my English classes with like, Mm. I had an English teacher named uh, Mrs. Sagor, Mrs. Susan Sagor. And she was like, I would be like entranced by her. We would talk about like Edith Wharton or Shakespeare and just Chaucer, anything. And Mm. I like, I would hang on her every word because she could make these like universes come alive. Um, And you would go to Barnes and Noble and read And I would go to Barnes and Noble. I would read magazines. I read every single Babysitter's Club book. I just like read everything, but I never thought it was like a job or a career. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the big differences between like then and now is now like there's almost too much information. Like you could follow a prominent book editor on Instagram Mm -hmm. or find their email address online and Mm -hmm. start a correspondence with them. Whereas back then it's like the career paths you didn't really know about unless you were lucky enough to have someone kind of tell you about them. And so I was definitely on autopilot. I went to Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, which is like super pre-med, pre-law, pre-engineering, pre-finance, like everything pre. But it also had a really great creative writing program. Um, It was called Writing Seminars. And um, there was like kind of like a core curriculum. And I, again, I like didn't really notice the clues where it's like, I would always just like effortlessly kind of do well in like the humanities classes, like mm. the writing and English classes. But then like pre-med was like such a struggle. This is before the expression, the struggle is real was around, but the <laughs> but struggle was, was very <laughs> real for me. Like I would, it, for like pre-med, I literally, I remember organic chemistry was the breaking point for me, which is like the class that kind of takes you from normal, like, yeah, I like science to like, oh my God, like pre-med is going to kill me. And like organic chemistry is about like kind of chemistry, but almost 3D, right? Um, and basically I really struggled so hard. I remember like organic chemistry, like studying, like I would have class for two hours a day and then I would study and try to like get these like models down for like six to seven hours a day. And I still only got like a B or a B plus. And to me, it was like, in retrospect, I look at that and I'm like square peg round hole. Whereas mm-hmm. I had a professor at Hopkins named Robert, um, Robert Reed Farr was his name, which is like just a great name for an English professor. Reed Farr. Yes. So good. Wow. Um, and so, and I loved him. I think he was a pretty junior professor at the time. And I took a course in James Baldwin from him. Um, mm. And I like loved it. And he was just like, so, so cool. And I remember thinking like, this guy's awesome. Like, I love this class, but I never thought to ask him, like, if I love to read and I love to, like, write, like, what should I be doing with my life? Whereas I do think a lot of teens and, like, young women approach me now and they're like, this is what I love and this is what I think I'd be good at. But I just didn't think to do that. I don't know. 
I don't feel like we were all that encouraged to do right. that. It was like there. I felt like as a kid there there were, to your point, serious professions, and then things that were fun but not serious. Yeah. And what I say now to people is like, look at the clues in your life. What would you do? Like even if you weren't paid to do it, like what would you, what would you do? Mm-hmm. And so, if you love like, and sometimes people will say, well, like. Well, my favorite thing to do is go to the movies or watch movies. And it's like, okay, well, you can make there's that that is a huge industry you're talking about. There's something there. You could be a graphic designer, you could mm-hmm. be in production, you could be like a like there's just so much you can do. You can be in casting, you could like, you know, yeah. like you can be an editor. There's just a lot you can do. Think about it. Like don't feel like it just has to be something you enjoy in your spare time. You could make it a career. So when did it click for you that it was a square peg round hole situation? When did you say pre-med is not for me? I struggled along with organic chemistry and pre-med until I was a junior in college. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of was like, I'm going to do this last hurrah. Like, woo, I'm going to go crazy. (laughs) Last, it's the, my last summer before I have to start studying for the MCAT and taking like, like this last year seriously. And so when I was a sophomore or I think I was a junior, I was a junior first semester. I was like, okay, like I'm going to apply for internships. I'm going to do something fun for one summer, just something kind of frivolous, mm. like the equivalent of kind of like the last hurrah. And I applied, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I basically applied for internships in like anything at companies, any company I had heard of before in my life. And so I applied for everything from like Random House um, and Simon and Schuster, like two companies whose books that I always like saw, like the name of the company that published them. And I just would go on their website, look for internship programs and just blindly send my resume off to MTV because like it's MTV and it's cool, obviously, to um, like talent agencies because I feel like I had read an article in like Variety or something about agencies or something in Vanity Fair about like the way agencies work. And so I applied to like William Morris in the mailroom and CAA in the mailroom to be an intern. And then I applied for magazines, Harper's Bazaar, um, because it was the only place that I really could find an internship program application. Mm -hmm. And I got internship offers from a bunch of places, but at the time Harper's Bazaar was the only one that paid. And I was like, oh my God. $300. This is like $300 every other week, which was like $600. Like that's a lot of money at like when you're like, I thought it was a lot of money. So I got really excited. Um, and it was the only one that paid. So I was like, $600 is better than like $0. Yeah. And so I took that internship and literally I had this like light over light bulb moment where I walked in and I was like, there are like a hundred people in this office and it's their job to make magazines. What? And so I met like Mm. I was in the beauty department. So I literally like on day one walked into the office and they were like, here's your beauty closet. Here's our beauty closet. And it's like a room the size of this like studio. And At it was least yeah, probably. And it was filled with beauty products, wall to wall, like a wallpaper, wall to wall of beauty products from floor to ceiling, wall to wall. And so there was a section for like like a special section of the wall just for eyeshadow, a special section of the wall. And literally I like walked in and was like, oh my God. And they were like, yeah, all these products are from last season. So we can't write about them anymore. And so can you please just like clean it all out and like get rid of all of it? And I was like, define get rid of. And they were like, well, like just throw it out. Unless you want to take it home and like 
or whatever and play with it. And I literally like that night, <laughs> like this was back when cell phones were like Nokia. You're texting in T9. Yeah, I'm texting where it's like I had to press like the letter five like three times to get to like my like the letter M. And I literally was like, oh my God, guys, come over. So many beauty products. And that was like, I don't want to say it was like those like 15 garbage bags of beauty products I brought home that night. But that literally was like, I cannot believe it's someone's job to like write a try on eyeshadow and write about the one that's like the best. The best. Yeah. So exciting. And so I like, I, that was like the moment I realized. And so I was split between the beauty department and the features department. So half my job was to like play with makeup and like play with shampoo and try things out and write about it. Or like, I didn't really get to write about it. Let's be real. I was like organizing it and helping people prepare for them to write about it, but I loved it. I didn't care. And then the other half of my job was to work with the books editor and help him organize books, like open packages of books. And so it like literally, and that was the same where it's like for every like 100 books this guy got, he would maybe take one home. And so that was 99 books I could take home. And I actually oh think gosh. I still have books from back then because they're like called galleys. Yeah. And I and, and they're, they're not kind of finished the way a real book is finished. Mm-hmm. It's like a paperback. It's not like nicely bound. But I think I still have some books that I took like 15 years ago that, that where I was like, I'll read this one day. And oh, I think I still have so those books. Cool. I have to find one. Yeah. No, you need to keep those. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. So you intern at Harper's Bazaar, which mm-hmm. kind of changes everything. Mm-hmm. And then you wind up at Oxford. I studied abroad at Oxford. I kind of was like, you know, this pre-med thing isn't happening. Like I should just like do something different. And so I studied abroad at Oxford and I met my husband there. Mm-hmm. Which So we were like kind of college sweethearts. I feel like weird saying college sweethearts because that makes me think of like living in like going to like Ohio State and him like, you know, wearing a varsity jacket and like, you know, but it feels like a movie. It feels like a movie. But we we met a long time ago. Um and I studied abroad there and I loved it. And the educational system in England is just like so different, at least at Oxford, where it's like there are no lectures at Oxford that are mandatory. It's like all based on one on one one on one education. So oh. when you are studying Shakespeare, you're literally sitting with like a tu- a Shakespeare, what they call a tutor, and you have to read these books in a week and you're graded on discussions with your tutor. And it's just you're sitting there chilling, talking for three hours about like Hamlet. And for me, that was also kind of like a moment because I realized like, you know, the way different people learn is really important and optimizing for the way people learn. Because maybe the way I, reason I kind of struggled so much in pre-med because it was all lectures. That experience sounds like my actual dream to yeah. sit and essentially do that, to have a conversation yeah. about thought yeah. is all I've ever wanted to do. Like you, bury me in that class. You should study at Oxford. Great. I'm Boom. ready. Go Is that where we're in, going? Yes. That should Are we be doing a semester abroad? First, we're going to go to Greece. And then, no, no. Greece will be like our break after right, Oxford. Right. It'll be our spring break. But it was like amazing and magical and so great and mm. a different way of learning. And that's like even now, like now so many years later, like that kind of made me realize that like, you know, like people love going to like workout classes, like um, where it's like 30 people in a room and they're all sweating together and following the same directions. And I never was good at following directions. Mm. And I always need like a one-on-one session just to like, it's just a better way for me to absorb. Mm -hmm. And now 
I get it now. Like I totally get it. And now when I see my daughter, because like I was talking to someone and they were like, oh, she does much better in like smaller groups versus like, and she loses focus when she's in big groups. And I'm like, that's because she's like a little me. And I didn't know that back then. And like, when I think back to what I know now, it's like, I would have done so much better in college or like in high school and just in general, if I'd known that about me. So how do you think about mentorship then? Like, I wonder, you know, after Oxford, you are working at magazines and you eventually wind up at Lucky. And Mm -hmm. I I think I actually remember the first time we met telling you about how when the first issue of Lucky came out, me and my best friend from college, Brenna Egan, sat on the lawn at USC and we were like, this magazine is everything. Yeah. And you had the stickers. Yeah. Oh my God. I loved the stickers. I mean, Lucky was genius when it came out. Like I still like the founding editor, Kim France, like she is, was a genius. Like, mm-hmm. honestly, like it, it just so much of the voice of that magazine where it was like friendly, accessible. It didn't feel like snobby at all. Mm-hmm. You didn't feel weird if like you didn't understand the print mixing thing. Like how do you mix stripes and florals? They kind of demystified everything. I, I just, I guess I'm wondering because you, you know, getting into this career in magazines right. and being in a magazine, yeah. like yeah, lucky. Yeah. yeah learning what you did at Oxford about how right. people learn differently and different right. communication strategies. Like how, how did that inform your leadership in a creative oh, place? And yeah. then, and then what do you, what does that make you think about mentorship? Yeah. Cause it sounds like your teachers, your tutors at, yeah. at a place like Oxford really become educational mentors. Totally. So I imagine that shaped your career afterwards. Yeah. I mean, I think like even when I think about, so I went to grad school when I was working. After I graduated, I worked at Lucky for a brief stint in the fashion closet in the lowest job, like literally checking credits, which mm. means like ch- calling Banana Republic and being like, is that skirt in fact $96? And like confirming that. Mm. But I weirdly enjoyed it because finding like creating process, et cetera. But like for me, I applied to grad school and it was actually one of my professors. It was Robert Reed Farr from from Hopkins who wrote my recommendation for Columbia for journalism school. Mentorship is a funny thing, right? Because I think that everyone now is told they need to find a mentor. And then I feel like a lot of young people will be like, I need to find a mentor. And they'll meet someone that they've never talked to before in their life. And they'll be like, will you be my mentor? And I feel like that's really tricky because it's like, for me personally, at least, like I meet people and when I, if I, I talk to them and if I click with them, Mm. like it's about having a conversation. I probably feel like I, I do something called informational interviews where like literally once a week for the last decade plus that I've been working, I meet with someone I've never met before and like for, and it's only for 15 or 20 minutes, but I'm like, ask me questions, like go. But I've done a few of those informational interviews where I've like clicked with someone and I've hired them. And so mm-hmm. like, it's very rare. I don't want people listening to this podcast to be like swarming me and then like expecting jobs. But literally as recently as like three months ago, I met someone and I was like, I just get like great vibes from you. And I have a feeling that like, like I'm, and I hired her and she mm-hmm. works for me now. Um, have you learned about yourself in those interviews? Because there are opportunities for people who you don't know and and for young people who have questions. But what is that process, that 15 to 20 minutes once a week taught you about yourself? I think that it definitely has helped me look back at my career and understand point like things about myself, such as like, 
I wish that I had become, been more assertive earlier on in my career mm. or like when I used to go to meetings, I would be like quiet because I would like be like, well, I'm the youngest person in the room. I don't want to say anything because mm. obviously like I know the least and realizing now, and, and this is also like a generational thing and different w- workplaces I think are different now, but I wish I had kind of like known like you know, to speak up sooner. Mm -hmm. And so like, and I see common threads now, like, you know, doing like hundreds probably of these informational interviews. And so I see common threads of what like people, especially when they're early in their career are going through and the doubts that they have. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of what like Sheryl Sandberg has called like imposter syndrome, where they wonder like, I don't deserve to be here. Mm -hmm. How did I get all of this like success or like recognition, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And especially for young women, a lot of the time who they they'll think like, well, I shouldn't say anything. I don't want to be a squeaky wheel. I don't want to be perceived as bitchy, bossy, like Mm. all of these like quote unquote bad things. Mm -hmm. But now in retrospect, I'm like, girl, you got to speak up because if you don't speak up, like someone else will. And there are also people who have, they get what they want or what they need because because they're speaking. Well, they they will ask. And for every person who's scared to ask, there are a hundred people who aren't scared to ask and Mm -hmm. they will get the job. So is that the advice you would give to young creatives? Ask the question, get clear about what you want. Yeah. Ask the questions. Don't be afraid to kind of speak up. And if something's not clear, I mean, like I feel lucky that I work in a place full time where transparency is valued and we're trying to be very transparent. Um, And like, all the managers I have, like they're very transparent about like whether it's their struggles or like things that they're happening in their personal and professional life. Mm-hmm. And I do think that's something that like the next generation of employees, like they're looking for that kind of like um, transparency. And if you're working in a place where it's like they don't treat you well, where the leadership, especially like if they don't treat women well or disrespectful towards women or not accepting to people as 360 degree human beings who also Mm -hmm. have like, I mean, for me, it's like, I leave work. I'm here with you right now. You know, we're talking about lots of different things, including like personal life, my books, which technically are personal projects. We're talking Mm -hmm. about kids. Like the people I work with know that like generally from like six to 8.30 PM, I'm off. Like Mm -hmm. I'm not working. I can't work because it's like, I have the full-time job of like, showering attention on my like little human beings that I'm trying to Mm. like, you know, have them like, just like have that, those magical moments with them while they're young. But like mentorship is a tricky thing. It's like you, it's like a two way street. It's not just about like someone who's entering the workforce kind of clicking with someone older. It has to be the other way around too. Cause I learn a lot from the people that I feel like I mentor and it's probably like less than five, like probably six people that I feel like I have an invested long-term investment in their careers. That's what Mm -hmm. mentorship's about. It's not just one conversation. It's like checking in, keeping in touch and caring about someone like inside and out. I love that. How, how is the experience of being a mom? Just to your point, you, you have to set aside all of this time for work and for your kids Mm -hmm. and, and you, and you do now write children's books. Oh my gosh. Like I've always, I've literally always wanted to write children's books. Mm -hmm. Um, and in fact, the first career before like pre-med, but I remember being, so my mom and dad traveled a lot when I was growing up and my mom would go to like, we would go to Taiwan, we would go to Korea, we would go like 
everywhere. And literally, I was like a very easy travel companion because my mom would just、mm-hmm. like, I would have the Babysitter's Club books or something.、Mm-hmm. And literally, I would be set, like the Ramono, the Quimby books or Beverly Clearly books, and I'd be fine. And my mom could literally take me anywhere and I would just sit and read quietly.、Mm-hmm. I don't know that my daughter would do that, but honestly, that's what <laughs> I was like. And I remember being like eight years old, being in a factory. I want to say in like Rhode Island, maybe,、mm. where my mom was like sourcing materials or something for something that they were like manufacturing. And I remember like having one of those black and white composition books and drawing like a kind of like cartoon and being like, I want to, when some, someone at the factory asking me, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And me being like, I want to be a cartoonist. And honestly, it was terrible. It was stick figures. I was not <laughs> meant to be a cartoonist. And then I remember writing like, I was obsessed with the Babysitter's Club growing up. I let, read like, Probably like all 100 of those books. I think there are 167 of them. And I remember like writing a fake version of the Babysitter's Club, like a designer imitation knockoff Babysitter's Club that was like the Camp Counselor's Club. And it was literally like about like summer camp counselors,、Amazing. which like I should like write that book now. Wait, were you ever a camp counselor? I was. I was too. When I was like 16 years old, it was a camp in the city, but it was still like the it's called Summer Start. I was like, I don't know how good I went I to Gold Arrow Camp. Okay. And I recently、go. discovered that they're on Instagram and I had a meltdown.、Oh. I'm very、oh. excited about oh, it. Oh, you should like DM with them. Yeah. No, I mean, it's like a huge, I'm like, where is sunshine? Tell me everything. Yeah. It's yeah. like, but like I, so I remember writing a fake version of the Babysitter's Club and probably it was terrible. I wish I still had that notebook because I、mm. probably would like frame it or something. But I, I have always wanted to write children's books. That's so cool. And I also think because there's something very like pure and like just like, I don't know, like whole, wholesome, I guess, about children's books. Like,、mm-hmm. like, and it's, they impact kids for so, like, now when I read a book and it's an amazing book, like, like, I love the book, The Art of Fielding. I don't know、mm-hmm. if you've read that book. It's about baseball, but I、mm-hmm. loved it. I'm not, I don't consider myself a sporty person, but like, it's an amazing book.、Okay. Anyway, so I read that book and it like impacted me and it moved me and I loved it. For some reason, I think back to the books I read when I was like eight, 10, 12, and I remember them like so much more clearly and like they moved me. So, what was it like to finally start? Where, where does the idea come from? How does one begin a children's book? Books are okay. So, children's books are really shockingly hard. They seem like they would be easy because you're like, oh, it's like 600 words or a thousand words, whatever. And it's for a kid who doesn't have to be that good. They're so hard because it's like, Everything has to be really tight. Then you have to match the words to the pictures. And then, like, you get the pictures back and they don't match the words, and you have to rewrite the words.、Mm. And so, for my fir- first book, it was very much a work in progress.、Yeah. I gotta like throw that in there. But、um, there is a specific kind of set and a cadence to it. And it's like amazing to go to these readings and meet all these parents and get tagged on Instagram where pic- people tag me. Like in pictures of them reading the book to the kids.、Mm-hmm. And then meeting,、um, I met this woman who was like, Oh my God, my daughter asks, calls your book the purple book and she asks for it every night.、Oh. It just makes me feel really good. Like it's, it, it's a really a feel good process.、Mm-hmm. And for my daughter, like, I mean, I didn't, I, I definitely think like what finally pushed me over the edge to write those books was my daughter because、mm-hmm. it was 2016. It was, You know, a tough time emotionally for me as a woman. Like,、mm-hmm. I went to an all girl, like, my most formative years in terms of education and like me turning into me, I would say, was the all girl school I went to.、Um, because I feel like I was never told 
I, I felt very lucky in the most formative years of like 13 to, or I think 12 to 17, I was always told like a woman can be president. A woman can go into space. A woman can do this. A woman yes. can do that. And there was just like no narrative of women can't mm-hmm. or like watch out. Like one day when you have babies and you stay at home, like that was just never part of like the narrative. And so when I went to college, I was always shocked when people were like, oh, well, like, I don't know. Or like, we're not sure that women can. And it's like, what? You're like, what, what universe are we living in? Yeah. yeah. And so for me, like 2016 was really like, kind of like, it, I like really struggled. Like I did too. Cause I felt like it was a reinforcement of all the wrong things and not just the wrong things, but all of the worst things. Worst things. Exactly. And so for me, it's like, I believe that there's no amount of times that a kid can be told a young child talking about a three-year-old to a 10, like 10 year old Mm -hmm. being told, like, you can do whatever you want. Boy, girl, doesn't matter. Like Mm -hmm. any child needs to be told that they can do what they want, that they can like achieve what they set their hearts and minds to, mm. they just need the right support. Right. Yeah. And so I wrote this book about this, this little, like little girl who loses her favorite pairs, uh, pair of shoes, Valentine. Gino Valentine. And she like finds, you know, she tr- tries on the shoes of Cleopatra, Frida Kahlo, like Anna Wintour, you know, Yayoi Kusama, and just kind of tries on all these shoes. None of them fit her quite right. And she makes mistakes so that she knows that like, you know, you should try in a lot of pair of shoes and you should fail. Like it's okay to fail. And mm-hmm. that's one of the things, the reasons why I chose the illustrator we went with because I kept getting illustrations, test illustrations from all, all these various illustrators and they kept making Juno Valentine so pretty and so adorable and so cute, but they didn't show her feeling angry. They didn't show her feeling frustrated. They didn't mm-hmm. show her feeling sad. And then Derek, who's this like my amazing illustrator, I was like, I want to see her like mad. I want to see her sad. I want to see her confused. Mm-hmm. And he did such a good job. I want to see of, her as a whole person. Yeah, I want to see her, like, because we don't especially want girls to feel like they always have to be smiling. You know, and that's the worst when someone's like, you'd be so much prettier if you smiled or smile. I'm like, you're going to be less pretty when I punch you in the yeah. face and break your nose. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> do people tell young boys to smile? No. 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 And so, like, that's part of the thing where it's like, right. I wanted this book to kind of reinforce to girl that girls that it's good to have a whole spectrum of emotions and also know that, like, it's okay to take time to figure out what you want to do because that that was yeah. the case for me. And so it's been a dream. Like, so a lot of the books that I mentioned, like the Babysitter's Club. So my editor, Jean Fywell, who's this like awesome, like legend in the children's book publishing, she has tattoos. She's cool. Mm-hmm. She's raised this like strong, independent daughter. She published the Babysitter's Club. She just, she worked, she, no. she came up with the idea and worked with the author, Anne Martin, and so literally like, and you know what? I was rejected from Macmillan like the first time. Basically it was like a whole thing where it's like, I was going on book, like, you know, doing all these book pitch meetings. And then someone who worked at Macmillan DM'd me and was like, what are you doing? Is this like part of Instagram? Are you selling a book? What's going on? Why aren't you at Macmillan, by the way? And I was like, and I checked with my agent and I was like, what's going on? Why? Allison's asking, why aren't we seeing Macmillan? And my agent, Kate, who was like amazing. Kate was like, you tell Allison that you rejected the book and it's too late. And so I told Allison, I was like, I'm really sorry, but like, I think you guys rejected my book. So that's why I'm not hanging out with you. And and then she basically got me a meeting with Jean and Jean was like, wrong, we have not rejected you. And here's an offer. And so like, wow. I think that's also like, you know, what a sign. It was a sign. And, so like, full circle. and I feel like sometimes, and then like you read stories like, I mean, J.K. Rowling, like, was rejected. I, I know all these, like, 
weird facts about rejection because it's like I'm researching it for like another children's book. Mm. And basically it's like J.K. Rowling was rejected 12 times. Like Zaha Hadid, the architect, like her original design for one of her most iconic buildings, the opera house in China, the Guangzhou Opera House, which is like considered like an architectural like wonder of the universe, Mm. was rejected at first. um, And it wasn't made until 16 years later. I know all these like weird facts right now about like awesome women, like the number of times, like a suffragette, what like Emmeline Pankhurst was like uh, arrested to get women the right to vote in mm. England. I know all these like weird, I have a, I'm a repository of weird facts about awesome women. So I have a question. When you think about facts about awesome women, when you think about rejection, when you think about the things that you learned, you know, in your career, mm. your entire incredible magazine career and winding up now working in tech and also the way that you grew up, you know, when you talk about being a daughter of immigrants pursuing the American dream and mm-hmm. growing up in a house where you spoke Chinese at home and you spoke English at school, mm-hmm. you you had to toe lines. And, mm-hmm. and in a way, as a kid, you know, you had to do a lot of code switching. Mm-hmm. And you are writing these books to make sure that your kids know that they're allowed to try things and to fail and to be curious mm-hmm. and, and all of this. How do you bridge the sort of cultural gap that you lived in Mm. as a kid for your own kids like what what do you bring them from your family's culture what does tom bring them Mm. how how do you talk to them about that that experience Mm. in the world and yeah because it's an additional layer of complexity because tom is british so Mm -hmm. it's like and that is a different culture as well especially in terms of like my parents it's like they talk very loudly. My mom is a passionate woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's like born in the year of the tiger. So like the whole tiger mom stereotype uh, is not untrue. <laughs> uh, and she like gets worked up about things. And then mm-hmm. English culture, which is like, I don't want to say stiff up, stiff up her lip, but it is a little bit more like, you know. Proper. Proper. Mm-hmm. And like not like when my parents are feeling emotion about things, there is shouting, there is screaming. My mom like they show they're like they're incapable of speaking in a normal tone of voice. Everything's I'm like, why are you screaming? We're talking about like croissants. Like what? Um, whereas it's like very like muted and very like, you know, oh, thank you so much. Like, you know, and there's always music, classical music playing in Tom's family, like on the like in the background. It's very like mm-hmm. relaxing and soothing. I I mean, I really believe that like people what makes them different and what makes them kind of that what might be a source of friction or kind of like, I'm not sure, Mm. almost always ends up being your superpower, Mm -hmm. right? And so for me, I feel like that was always the case. When I was in fashion, I didn't feel like I was like fashion-y. Like when I worked in fashion magazines, when when I transitioned from beauty to fashion, especially, I never felt I was fashion-y enough. I felt like I was like maybe too nice, too friendly. I'm very like... I wear my heart on my sleeve. I cry very easily. I cry. I've cried like four times today, by the way, mm-hmm. you know? And so, and that always made me different. And I remember thinking like, am I like fashion enough to work in fashion? And my husband was like, are you crazy? Like, that's what makes you different and like special and good. Right. Mm. And so when I think about raising my kids, it's like, I don't want, I want them to be the best versions of themselves. And it's too, it's very early. Like my, my daughter's mm-hmm. four and a half. My son is like, two and a half. I've even seen my daughter. She used to like 
not want to wear tutus. She used to not want to wear dresses. Like she would wear like leggings and a sweatshirt. And now every day she likes going into her closet and choosing something. And that didn't come from me. I I always was like, oh, wear whatever you want, or it's not a big deal. And Mm. whenever someone used to say like, oh, you look so pretty today, I would be like, and I'm that crazy mom. I'm like, Ren, but you know, the most important thing is not pretty because pretty doesn't like mean anything. You have to be pretty in here and pretty in here Mm -hmm. pointing at my heart and like my, like, you know, my, my head. And she'd be always like, okay, mom. And then the other day, like my dad, we were FaceTiming and my dad was like, oh, Ren, you look so pretty. And my, my, my daughter was like, Ren was like, I'm not, I'm not pretty. I'm brave. And I like started crying. I started bawling. I was like, oh my God, it's working. My brainwashing is working. But it's like- She knows how powerful she yeah, is. Yeah. But it's like really like, I, yeah. I, I, I want to raise my kids without like the expectations mm-hmm. of like what they have to be or what they should be. Like my son loves putting on like my shoes and running around the apartment. Mm-hmm. It's like sometimes they're heels and it's like just an experimentation thing and kind of like playing dress up kind of thing. And I remember when that happened with Jenna Lyons, like, I don't know if you remember, there was a big controversy, like probably five or six years ago where Jenna Lyons like put nail polish on her son and it was like a big thing. And I'm like, they're having fun. Who cares? You know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, let your kids kind of like, I think that's the most important thing. Like let it all play out. And that's Mm -hmm. what I've learned as a mother, I would say is like any kind of notion that you have that you can control something, you have zero control. And Mm -hmm. I think that's been very humbling for me as a person. Um, Like to, I used to kind of organize everything and send a calendar invite and triple confirm something. And now, especially I'm just kind of like, I don't know, we have to play it by ear. Anything with my kids, Mm -hmm. especially I'm like, we'll see, we'll see what time we get there. I used to have an itinerary. We would arrive at this place by this time. Then we would like put our bags down, unpack, and then it would be this time. And now I'm literally like, we'll see what happens. Maybe we'll get there. Maybe we'll have to check into a motel on the way. Cause like so-and-so has like, get sick. You just never know. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine there's some freedom in that. Yeah. Freedom slash anxiety. <laughs> but like, yeah. Freedom in that, like you kind of just, they, they kind of force you. It's like a definitely a grounding mechanism. Like yeah. it's like, and it, they, they, it also forces you to slow down as a, as a human, because mm-hmm. like, I feel like as growing up in New York City, everything's go, go, go around you all the time. Mm-hmm. Once you kind of like get kind of going in your career, it's go, go, go all the time sometimes. Or, you know, if you're kind of like going through a career kind of swing, but then with kids, it's like, you can't rush it. Mm-hmm. You you literally, like they would do things on their own time. They develop on their own time. They choose when they want to potty train. They choose when they, like it's, and then I don't, the harder you push, the more they resist. And so that for me has been a lesson as well. Can't make anything happen. Right. So I know that maybe kids could be an answer to this and and maybe the new book could be an answer to this. But as you mentioned, the title of the podcast is Work in Progress. Mm -hmm. And I, I like to ask everyone, whether it's something personal or professional or political or throwing itineraries away who knows what what in your life right now feels like a work in progress i feel like my entire life is kind of a work in progress Mm -hmm. which is like hard um because it i'm going right now through a phase where it's like my younger one is starting to like have his own activities and have his own circle of friends he's two and a half and he has like a a very (laughs) robust social life (laughs) And it's like, it's really hard to schedule 
like his life schedule, my daughter's life schedule, my own life. And so that my social life is a work in progress because it doesn't exist right now. Mm. Um, and I went into this new year with like the new year's goal of being like, I need to see my friends more. Like, I just feel like I'm like losing. We keep in touch. We text, we WhatsApp, we like are talking all the time, sure. but like seeing someone in person. And so that's a work in progress. And then definitely like, I would say like, my like journey as like, it's taken me time to like, accept that I'm like, I have this like side career of an author and we have like a clothing line that comes with it. And it's like this amazing thing that I'm so enjoying doing, but it was very hard when my book came, my first book came out last year because I was learning how to write a children's mm-hmm. book and I was learning what works for a children's book. And I'm so proud of this new book that's coming out. I love it. The narrative is really tight. Like I know how to write children's books now, mm-hmm. but especially around my first book, it was really hard to read the reviews. Like, and I'm sure I, as like, you know, an actress, like, you're told the same thing probably like don't read reviews because it's like people are not don't read the comments don't read comments exactly and it's like that was like really hard i remember like reading these reviews and people would like it was just like like one or two and people were like so mean and i was like i don't know if they know that i literally like put my soul into this children's book it wasn't like a vanity project literally like you don't really make money writing like books children's books at least like you have to do it because you really want to do it and so for me, the journey to becoming an author has been definitely a work in progress for me. And like self-acceptance as like an awareness that it's like a thing now has been really like amazing slash kind of like scary. Yeah. That's to awesome. self-identify as that. Because I was thinking like yeah. over the weekend, I was like, well, like what would I want? I was I go with to bookstores every weekend with like, especially Ren because she loves books, um, mm. which makes me so happy. And every weekend I was thinking back, it's like when I was growing up, I would go with my mom to these factories and I would be sitting there reading a book. Like, is my, is Ren going to remember going to bookstores with me? Is that going to be the thing that she remembers? And then I started crying and it was like a whole thing. Cause it's like, it, I, I hope that that is like the thing she remembers, like coming to bookstores with me and like being involved in that whole process. I'm sure she will. Yeah. And what a cool thing it will be for her to be sitting in our position one day and say, yeah, my mom started writing these children's oh books for me. I think she's trying to make me cry because it's working. I'm, yeah. But that's so cool. Yeah, I, I can't so. wait. This is, you made that. me cry for the sixth time today. <laughs> oh my God, I cried this morning because like I went to camp and every kid, I showed up at camp and every kid was in like freaking superhero costumes. And I'm like, oh my God, today was superhero day at school. And I like a camp and I totally forgot. I'm like standing there and Ren's the only one not in a superhero costume. And then I was like, oh my God, I'm a terrible mom. And then I was like, and some like crappy person was like, you are a bad mom on Instagram. And then I was like, "Can I, am I allowed to say fuck? Like yeah. I, I'm like fucking blocking you, jackass. Yeah. And then I like screen grabbed me blocking him. Uh, yeah. I do that sometimes. It feels like an act of resistance. Yeah. But I also feel like for me, at least my Instagram community is like so supportive and like Mm -hmm. it's all these like, most of my followers are, I think it's like 90% women and everyone was like so nice about it. And Mm -hmm. it's like one mean person. And so I really took advantage of like Instagram's full suite of tools of blocking and like reporting and Mm -hmm. all of that stuff. Well, also what's wrong with you? Someone's expressing that they're a real person who isn't always perfect and you're, and you're shitting all over them in that moment and my daughter literally like of course like and this is like something as women it's like my daughter literally like did not care 
Yeah. Because like uh, I bumped into another mom who was so great and she was like, oh, we have an extra mask. Do you want it? And I was like, Ren, like, do you want to dress up like everyone else? Do you want to be a superhero? Like Sam and Sebastian and Ari and like, like, um, Jane. And she literally was like, no, I'm fine. I'm happy. Like being me. And I was like, oh, and then I was like, I'm raising a good kid. But then I was like, you know, she didn't care, but it's more like the expectations yeah. that like women, especially, and I think moms, especially we put on ourselves to like oh. have it all handled. And that's why, at least for me on my Instagram, like I show when I like, for if I forget like superhero day, I'm posting about that on Instagram, yes. not to overshare, but to give my followers who are all awesome, like permission to be like, the number of comments were like, I dropped my daughter off dressed up as a Hawaiian uh, like hula dancer. And I didn't realize that the next, it was actually the next day. Aww. And so she was the only one in like coconut boobs and like a grass skirt. And I was like, okay, I guess that's like, that definitely made me feel better. Yeah. But that's the reminder is everyone's human. Yeah. And I think the more we can be our full selves in our public spaces, the yeah. better, because otherwise we're just lying that we're yeah, perfect. And totally. none of us is, we are all Ugh. such a work in progress. Yeah. It's like for, for, for the kid, like, especially for like all the women out there and the 20 things where like, I was talking to to someone over the weekend and she was like, I just feel like everyone my age has it all figured out. And we go out to brunch and they all have these amazing jobs and these amazing boyfriends and they don't ever ask, like feel lost. And I'm like, I guarantee you, I, they all feel lost. They all feel lost. They're just hiding it. And yeah. it's like, if you, if you're the first one to be like, I feel like I'm barely holding it together it usually gives people permission to mm-hmm. kind of say like, oh my God, me too, this happened. Mm-hmm. And I, I see that on my personal Instagram. I see that when I like talk to my friends where mm-hmm. everyone's like, oh my God, how's this? How's that? Congratulations on your promotion. But then the moment someone says something like, oh my God, this happened and I forgot this huge thing or I was late to this meeting because like yeah. something else happened, people, it just gives people permission to like let it all out. And then mm-hmm. it's usually this like feeling of like, like relief that like, you know, that feeling of relief yes. where it feels like someone's cracked a relief egg on your head mm-hmm. and it just like spreads on you. Yeah. Like, it's like, I think women need to give each other permission to kind of like be the first and not be afraid. Also yes. be brave enough to be the first to admit that something went wrong. Yes. Work in progress. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Clillian Anatomy.